Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. I'm Scott Jones. I'll be your host, and we come to you every Friday where we release an episode in conjunction with the release of our website's weekly roundup, Another Week Ends. We also have some special episodes that come out from time to time around releases of our publications like our magazine and our most recent Mockingbird at the Movies. Before we take a look at Another Weekend's, we'll be joined by our special guest and friend of the show, Sarah Condon, to talk about how we eat our souls at the holidays. And at the conclusion of the podcast, we'll have a review of Star Wars The Force Awakens with Brian Jarrell. If you like what you hear, don't forget to stop over in the iTunes store and give us a rating and a review. And now, Sarah Condon. All right, I'm back with Sarah Condon, who many of you remember from a couple mocking casts ago. Sarah, how are you doing today? Good, good. Getting ready for Christmas. You've been hitting holiday parties? Yeah, hitting all of them. We've got two churches in the family, so it's a lot of parties. <laughs> now, fortunately, you're Episcopalian, so those parties are probably more fun than if you were like teetotaler Baptists or... They're a lot of fun, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Now, yeah. how many people judged you for eating cookies and stuff? Because you just um, wrote this piece entitled, Tis the Season to Eat Our Feeling. Yeah, well, I mean, nobody last night because there was enough wine that no one probably noticed what everyone else was eating. But, um, I mean, I find like in broad daylight at church functions or like in office settings, that's when it's most like people are sort of watching what everyone else is eating and thinking about what they're eating and commenting a lot on the food. And, um, yeah. It's interesting. Um, Jonathan Haidt, who's spoken in a Mockingbird conference, he does a moral psychology. He says, normally progressives don't care so much anymore about purity as one of the sort of moral channels, you know, like in ancient cultures, you think a lot about, but the exceptions around food. Oh yeah. Like if you tell a sort of hipster progressive person that you ate a Big Mac, it's like, it's like you, you are some sort of sexual deviant or something. And right. they look at you like, <gasps> yeah, there's so much judgment around food. And honestly, when, when I had this interaction, that kind of, I had this weird, like these weird thought one that followed the next that was like, well, so I had a, a, a colleague that said like, you, like you shouldn't eat those cookies. You know how many calories are in those cookies. And so like the first thought was like, I'm not 12. Like if I want to eat cookies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I can. And then the next thought was, you know, I'm pretty thin for an American. And then I was like, that doesn't matter. You know, like you still can't tell me I can't eat cookies. Like it was this weird, like, you know, I don't know, but maybe it's also just like the judgment, you know what I mean? Like it's a really convenient, easy, accessible way to judge people. Um, quickly you know it doesn't take much effort and the holiday season is there's just so much of it i also think i mean i th i feel like i would be um 
I would be keeping back something if I didn't say that I think part of this is intimately tied to uh, just the vast amount of eating disorders that are out there. I mean, honestly, I think this is like just an indicator of, of how many people have eating disorders, whether they eat too much or they eat too little. And this is a way that they can sort of play that self out. Um, I heard somebody comment, it's been years ago, but it was a feminist scholar. And she said that um, eating disorders were like the latest um, violence against women that, mm. that we're seeing in this country. And, you know, there's a lot of pushback against that statement, but I, I actually think it's pretty accurate. So I find myself being very empathetic towards women during this season, um, especially if I know that's something they're dealing with, because I mean, that must, must be horribly difficult. Like you're surrounded by food, you're surrounded by rules. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's something I definitely thought about when I was writing this piece. Yeah. You know, C.S. Lewis, I think in Mere Christianity talks about, he's, he's trying to like engage with the mid 20th century kind of distorted view of sexuality. And he's, yeah. he's, he's thinking of strip clubs and, and things. He says, you know, imagine a culture where you unveiled like a beautiful succulent roasted turkey and mm -hmm. nobody ate it. They just looked at it and I'm mm -hmm. thinking, and he thinks it's so absurd. Now it's food TV. We, we do this all the right. time. <laughs> like, it's not right. an absurd analogy. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 People love to look at that stuff. It's everywhere. Like there's um, a show called cupcake wars or something. I mean, I know. I know. I know so many kids who watch that. That's like such a popular show with like little kids. But uh, yeah, it, yeah, there is like food porn. It's everywhere. I mean, everyone looks at it. Uh, there's one website after another dedicated to it. And um, yeah, it's I don't know. By the way, those people are the most gifted people in production. Like Anthony Bourdain, yeah. that doesn't take much talent to make him interesting. But yeah. I actually watched an episode and found it interesting. I'm like, how are these people making a cupcake competition interesting? Yeah. These are geniuses. Get them to HBO to produce serial dramas. I mean, who knows what they could do? It's high drama. <clears throat> so do you have any, like, advice? You also do a little no – we call it the sort of non-advice advice column for Mockingbird. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people at holiday parties to, like, to dial down their anxiety, particularly around food? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I just think I hate saying things like be really present. But I, I really think, you know, the whole reason that we're there together is is to celebrate, you know, our relationships with one another and how much we love each other and how we're all redeemed through Christ. Like, literally, no matter what party you're at, like, even if you're at a party for your wife's hospital that she works at, like you as a Christian are there for that reason, because you're in community with people who God loves and God loves you. And so... I try to kind of walk into parties with that open heartedness and, and the food is like tertiary, you know, at the highest. I mean, it's just not high up on the list. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. For me, I'm one of those people when I'm at a party, there's so much happening and I'm such an introvert that I'm like, I, the food I don't even taste. So yeah, that, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that question. For me, like the best part about holiday food is when I'm home, right? And when we've made it and when my kids are here and we can really slow down and enjoy it. So, yeah. You know, that's good advice. You know, one of the things I think – so one of my favorite quotes, you are what you eat, right? It, <laughs> from Ludwig, it's from Ludwig uh, Feuerbach and nobody knows the context, but it's yeah. – it's, it's, uh, what he's saying is like 
he was an atheist and he was saying that basically you eat decaying matter and you are decaying matter, right? Oh. So it's interesting with the whole with the whole paleo thing, right? Like right. well, if we get back to what we were originally designed to eat. But it seems like Christianity is saying there's a future meal that shapes us. That the key mm-hmm. is eating not back to our origins, but eating in light of our destination. So maybe that means eating with Thanksgiving, like Eucharistically. Right. Yeah. And actually you point something really interesting with that quote. I didn't know the context of that, but for me, like constantly obsessing about what I'm eating or not eating is like constantly obsessing about the fact that like my bottom teeth are kind of messed up. (laughs) I'm like, the deal is like, I'm 33. Like, like maybe I'm, I've got another five decades. You know what I mean? Like left of life. Is this really worth worrying about? I don't know. Like, I I actually take a lot of solace in death, oddly, like, on a lot of legalistic matters. I'm like, well, you know, I'm not – my teeth aren't straight. Teeth should be straight now. Everybody gets braces. And then I'm like, yeah, but I'm only going to be around another five decades. You know what I mean? Like, I probably shouldn't eat the brie because, you know, swimsuit season's going to happen eventually. But, like, I'm only going to be around another five decades. Like, that tends to be how I navigate these issues, for better or for worse. But. You, yeah, and I think there's something about that that allows you to – like, uh, Alexander Schmemann in his book uh, For the Life of the World, is a Russian Orthodox mm-hmm. guy uh, – said, you know, that what's unique about humanity is we're the priests of the creation of creation. We're the only people that can take creation mm-hmm. or food and offer it back to God in Thanksgiving. Mm. And so maybe some of the levity and, and being kind to yourself and not taking yourself so seriously is the key to actually eating eucharistically or eating with Thanksgiving, whether it's the Christmas yeah. cookie or the vegetables or whatever, because yeah, yeah, you yeah. can eat either really ungratefully or yeah. Or you could eat something healthy or something. Uh, last weekend, my wife and I were on a road trip, and I ate within 24 hours a double quarter pounder and an Arby's extra roast beef. It was so delicious. And I was thankful for yeah. horseradish sauce on the. But yeah, I think that the key is how do we eat in a way where, in response to the you know, promiscuous grace we've been shown, we can eat gratefully. Yeah. 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 And honestly, that's why I'm so grateful that like there's a, a Eucharistic communion, you know, at church every single Sunday. Cause it's such like, I remember when my husband and I got married, the priest, when he was preaching the sermon, he looked at us right before. So it was like sermon. And then, you know, we were quickly going to go into the communion and he looked at my husband and I, and he said, this is the first meal that you're actually having together. And I think of that a lot when we go up to the communion rail now, like this is like, this is that central meal. Um, and there's, there is you learn your table manners. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's something very redemptive about that for all meals. So, yeah. So, well, thank you, Sarah. And I want everybody to go read the piece. Uh, um, go to emberg.com. Tis the season to eat our feelings. Yeah. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Just eat it.
All right, I am back for the second time on the Mockingcast with Ethan Richardson. Here he is to talk. Hey, everybody. Here he is to talk a little bit about Another Weekends, which he has crafted on his last time. I always like to imagine, like, you're writing with a different instrument for some reason. Like, it's the vibe you give off. Like, Yeah, yeah. Like, like I'm, I'm writing with my nose uh, on an Etch-A-Sketch. Or like I think it was like a, like a fountain pen or like an old typewriter. I wish, man. I wish. It'd probably be better if it was with a fountain pen on a piece of paper. It might be. It might be. So there's a crisis. Tell us about it. It's a crisis of character. Yeah. So what we're leading off with in this week's Another Weekend. I'm not the host of The Mockingcast. I self-identify. As the host of the podcast, I just want to yeah. get that out there. Go up. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm not a blogger. I'm not a writer. Uh, I actually don't even work for Mockingbird. I just self-identify as someone who might be hired by uh, a company that might call itself uh, something like a ministry called Mockingbird. I like that. Um. So yeah, this I have never heard of this journal before. Uh, spiked journal in the UK and. Uh, Brendan O'Neill is the editor, and he wrote this uh, sort of long-form think piece called The Crisis of Character, Identity Politics, and the Death of the Individual. And uh, he starts off by saying, in the past, individuals were. I am a builder. I am a mother. I am a Jew. There was a confidence, a certainty to their sense of identity and to their, de- and to their declaration of it. I am. Today, individuals identify as something. I identify as working class. I identify as non-binary. And he goes on to sort of talk about how that change in language has actually done quite a bit to uh, the way we think about ourselves in the worlds that we live in. Now, what is, what is, how are you non, but what, if somebody self-identifies as non-binary, does that mean like they're not like, caught up in a sort of bifurcated intact. What does that even mean? What's non-binary mean? It means, uh, I think it means that there's, there's not night or day. There's just, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I think, I think, you know, we, I I don't know, man. I mean, isn't the part of the point of self-description to describe something? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Self-identify. I should know more about you. Right, exactly. And and that's kind of his point is that the way that we talk about self-identification now is is a way to um, do it in the least offensive way that we're never actually grouped into any group whatsoever. The group that we're actually a part of is so amoebic that like anybody and no one could be a part of it. Uh, and so our groups that we find ourselves being a part of actually kind of end up meaning nothing because there are no, there are no adjectives to go with those groups. Um, so for example, and I don't want to get into too much of the gender binaries, but um, Smith college, which is a women's college. And I think it's in Massachusetts, but um, 
they just recently, and O'Neill talks about this, but they just recently rewrote their, um, their admission, uh, standards. And rather than it just being, um, a college for women, they say that they are still absolutely a college for women, but they are also a college for uh, people who are born male, but self-identify as a woman. And so now we have, um, it's still an all women's school because even the men who go there call themselves women. And the point he's making by describing this is, is basically to say that, um, we are what we feel we are. And if anybody tells you otherwise that you aren't what you feel you are, um, then, then that's, um, that's some way of sort of closing the door on your identity, which, which should never be done. Do you think some of this is just like, I think like part of the, what's at the heart of being an alienated creature, right? Is that, alienate from your creator you hate your limits Mm -hmm. like it seems like in the garden it's part of the thing going awry in the book of genesis is something like adam and eve don't like their their proscribed kind of limits so they want different and so i wonder if this is just like a sort of is 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 the kind of manifestation of that malady in our culture where, but now it's like to everything, I'm not going to be limited. Like even things that seem to limit me like biologically or physically, you, you know, I can self identify them away. Right. Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's both the desire to sort of leave limits and to be limitless, but it's also this longing to, belong. It's, it's the longing to be a part of something that, um, maybe you feel, uh, you were excluded from, or it's the fear of being exclusionary. I feel like that's, that's the main thing now that we'll see in pop culture is that people, people find, um, almost anything offensive these days. And, and therefore a lot of truth claims are completely thrown out the window when it comes to you know, political campaigns or TV personalities, all of these identity politics and the ways that we are supposed to um, leave the door open for any kind of person uh, ends up creating sort of an an amorphous person um, that's on the other end. Well, I'm for a little more morphing, I guess. If amorphous is, if we're too much amorphed, then we need morphing, I guess. I just had the opposite of, I don't know what. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Concrete. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Concrete. On, on a different note, tell us about the crisis with Elf on the Shelf. Yeah, there's definitely a crisis with Elf on the Shelf, too. So there's a, there's a Wall Street. It's not Wall Street Journal. On the Washington Post, uh, an article, The Elf on the Shelf is Preparing Your Child to Live in a Future Police State, Professor Warns. And we've already talked about this. It's a little bit ridiculous. But, um, yeah, there's there's an academic out there who is saying that The Elf on the Shelf uh, is, is kind of um, 
it's kind of normalizing this state of smartphone surveillance, you know, this behavior management um, that can happen from uh, a seemingly harmless object that's bought on the free market. And as, as ridiculous as that sounds, we've talked about Elf on the Shelf for a few Christmases now. And um, the article said that the Elf on the Shelf had had its own Thanksgiving Day float this year. Um, and we have always been sort of obsessed with the idea of privacy. But I mean, what's interesting for us at Mockingbird is the fact that this elf on the shelf is so often the way that we picture a relationship with God. And so. N.T. Wright calls that this, the, 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 uh, spy in the sky theology that somewhere there's this divine figure that's looking to make sure I'm not enjoying myself or having fun or anything like that. Right. Someone's always watching. And so I, I guess what I found funny about the article is that, uh, it ends by saying that, you know, this academic is sort of fighting a losing battle because the elf on the shelf is so popular, but, on another level, it's always been popular. I mean, we've always, whether or not we've had video surveillance, we've always liked to think that someone is out there keeping score. And and that's that's the way that we've always sort of pictured our own sort of inner justice systems and the way that we think about uh, our relationships with people that are close to us and our relationship with uh, the God that we so Mockingbird, down on amorphousness. Down on Elf on the Shelf. We're, da- we're down or up with Elf on the Shelf? I think we're down on Elf on the Shelf in terms of how it uh, gives us a picture of uh, God, how it forms a theology. But, but it's also we're also down on how it sort of um, – I, I think Elf on the Shelf kind of – uh, the reason that it's becoming so attractive to families is it kind of keeps kids thinking that their behavior ought to be good because they're being watched, which as far as we're concerned is not the way that, that gets the kid to be a good kid. Yeah. most <laughs> I think so much parenting is based on fear and shame. Right. Like yeah. as opposed to, so we wonder why kids, are inoculated against grace and the gospel. It's because all of our character formation has been legalistic with fear and shame. Then suddenly you wonder why why kids, you know, are drawn to a kind of uptight legalistic spirituality. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And when that's taken away, it feels like a part of them is being taken away. You know, it's, it's, it's the structure they, that we grew up under, you know? So let's conclude with a little bit of neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Marilyn Robinson, who I don't know if I'd, if I'd want to get a beer with Marilyn Robinson, she's, she's always saying amazing things, but she's a, an extremely serious person. Um, and no different here in, in brain pickings, there's a, there's a few quotes from her new book, which I guess just came out for the Christmas season, the givenness of things. And, 
I think in it, she, it's a collection of essays and she's talking about, uh, among other things, faith, religious faith, uh, especially religious faith in a time of, uh, where scientific inquiry is, is the main religious faith and, and especially in an age where we have more religious nuns than we do religious. And so in this particular piece, uh, she's the, the writer on brain pickings is quoting from, uh, an essay where she's actually talking about, neuroscience and mainly neuroscience because of what it says about the inner workings of the human brain and how it seems to kind of uh, give reason for all the different things that that happen uh, when we fear or when we long for someone or when we love someone and regardless of how true those wirings and how true the assertions are from a neurological perspective, Robinson is still saying that there are elements of the way our minds work that can never be explained. And, and yet when someone's reading about neuroscience, that part gets uh, quickly pushed under the rug. And so from there, she kind of talks about the idea of a soul and how a soul is, is something that's non-physical. It's, it's, by definition, uh, not from the body, which is why no one really talks about the soul anymore because there's, there's no evidence to back it up. Yeah. It's like an emergent reality, right? It's, 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 it's something that's like, I mean, who we are, right. Is certainly dependent on our neurons and chemical reactions, mm -hmm. impulses, but we can't be reduced to that. Like if, if I, if I wrote out all the equations and stuff that happened when, you know, you, you fall in love with someone or have a great conversation or, you know, or you're grieving or something, you, you wouldn't, you couldn't get derived the experience from the equations and the impulses. And even though it might help you understand some things about mm -hmm. why the experience is, is received the way it is, but you can't reduce it to that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, can I read a little bit from what she, what she Please says? Do. Okay. Um, so this is, this is Robinson. That said, it, it might be time to pause and reflect, holding to the old faith that everything is in principle knowable or comprehensible by us is a little like assuming that every human structure or artifact must be based on yards, feet, and inches. The notion that the universe is constructed or we are evolved so that reality must finally answer in every case to the questions we bring to it is entirely as anthropocentric as the notion that the universe was designed to make us possible. So we are down on the amorphous culture. We're down on Elf on the Shelf, and we are down on reductionism. Yeah, we're down on reductionism. We always have been. Um, Marilyn's just saying it better than we ever have. But we're up on Marilyn Robinson. Yeah, we're totally up on Marilyn Robinson. Um, and let's see, what else are we up on this week? We're up on some things, I promise. We're, and we're up on another weekend. We're up on the weekend, weekender, another weekend. We're up, yes. up on it. We're yes, the weekender, the weekender will be up. Yeah, and we're up on that. And yeah. on that note, we got to get moving over to Star Wars. Yeah.
But Ethan, thank you very much for compiling all this, all these links and for your commentary. And I hope you have a great weekend. All right. Thanks, Scott. about that nutty Star Wars bar? Can you forget all the creatures in there? And hey, Darth Vader in that black and evil mask, did he scare you as much as he scared me? Ah! Star Wars! Those here in Star Wars! My seventh winner up All right, welcome. I'm here with Ryan Jarrell, who does social media for Mockingbird, and who is... He is a Star Wars aficionado, <laughs> freakishly devoted fan of the franchise. Is that not correct? It, it is. It is much to my embarrassment and delight that that is correct. I, I am a I am a Star Wars fan since grade school. Um, I was I was just showing off my Boba Fett collector's helmet and my Rebel Alliance themed headphones that I am wearing for this conversation and uh i i if you're not a star wars fan like i i understand if you don't get it but uh, this is this is a you know it's like jesus christ my wife star wars something like that so you <laughs> oh it's goodness for the mockingbird website which people can find ember.com and mm-hmm. its title is never tell me the odds growing up with Star Wars and The Force Awakens. And by the way, let me just say to our listeners, the first minute or two here of a couple minutes of our conversation, we're going to have a sans spoiler conversation. Then we will get into some spoiler conversation. We'll try to give you the time it would take to, you know, tune out if you don't want any spoilers. That That is our goal. We're going to keep spoilers away for the next uh, few minutes here. Uh, yeah, so, so it was that post, Never Tell Me the Odds, uh, and then there was a post I wrote two years ago, over two years ago, when they first announced that The Force Awakens was was a thing. And it was called The Odds of J.J. Abrams' Star Wars Episode Seven Being Loved is Approximately 3,720 to 1. And it, really, both of those posts were sort of a reflection on um, these themes of like advent expectation and hope fulfilled and translating them into language that a Star Wars fan could could connect with. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, this is a movie, the, the Star Wars Episode Seven. if you're not a Star Wars person, this may not, like, click for you, but there's a lot riding on it for people in the Star Wars subculture uh, because the, the original movies were so great. Um, the, the three movies that were done in the, you know, 1999 and early 2000s, they were such a disappointment and, and, and on many levels. And you can go online and read about why that is. I won't bore you with the details here. So now that it, things are happening again, there's so much hope <laughs> and expectation. And, um, what I was trying to, to articulate was, you know, I was anxious and I, I was nervous because, um, uh, the, the whole marketing machine hype, uh, has definitely translated Star Wars is a lot more in than it used to be. 
like uh what do you what do you think scott like it, it was when you were younger was star wars like an in crowd thing where people like was that something that was part of your childhood uh or, I, or part of your grade school experience we all like the action figures like my friends and we you know like there was but it wasn't i don't recall like the just ever sort of mass saturation to the level it is yeah and and you know it's not it's it's in target and it's in kohl's and now it's in my local grocery store and my gas station and now it's you know um at the car dealerships and i i can't you know uh the the ads for commercials on tv i just was like where like this is so different than you know like pizza hut cup toppers for episode one (laughs) you know it's it's a different thing and it got me just wondering if if star wars is just so different now will the movie reconnect in that same way that's the anticipation that i went in and um I, i won't say anything about my thoughts on the movie until after we give the spoiler alert um, but I saw the movie last night and you saw it this morning. I, I right? saw it this morning. I had popcorn for breakfast. So I'll, I'll follow your lead. What do you want to share sort of spoiler free about the movie now that you've come out on the other side? Uh, I thought it was well done. I liked, uh, I thought the cinematography was good. I thought I read an article a few minutes ago. I think it was on slate or something that they said that this is the first Star Wars movie without a bad performance. Like, none of the actors really gave a bad performance. And I thought that was pretty... I, I thought that was a reasonable claim. Uh, you know, the, the, the acting was good. I thought it, it was it was long in a good way. Like, I, I mean, I thought like it was a full yeah. film. And I thought, the you know, the effects were cool. I thought... In general, I walked away. I was not as unenthusiastic... I think as as you, I was, I liked it. I was, I was, a, I was a fan. Yeah. And I will, I will, I will say this, uh, to our listening audience. Uh, I'm walking away. And again, remember, um, I'm the sort of guy who sympathizes with like the nerdy guys who keep their, their, their toys in boxes. Like I like those guys there. I don't, I don't make fun of them. Uh, cause I understand that impulse. And, uh, I, I came away disappointed, um, but not for reasons that I can share without spoilers. So I can say things like, I agree. I thought the acting was, was great. Like it wasn't a distraction. And I was super thankful for that. I thought the Star Wars aesthetic with this, like, everything's in the future, but everything's kind of beat up and rusty at the same time. I thought that was a great, uh, you know, um, you know, all the, all the bad guys have the sleek new cool stuff and all the good guys are like keeping their starships together with patchwork. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what fashionable. I mean, the first order, very snappy fascists. I mean, they, they really are. They I mean, really were gosh. dressed to die. I mean, some of those outfits were to die for. Like I can tell you this, like if I had the time and the resources, I would get that uh, the uh, Gwendolyn Christie as Captain Phasma. I mean, I just I love the the silver stormtrooper suit, and I can tell you that because it's not it's not a spoiler because it's in the commercials. I just think that's yeah, it's great. So um, anyway, I thought I thought uh, uh, you know the the production value was great. Uh, the the CGI was not supremely distracting. I mean, this was definitely. Uh, they, they aimed high to recreate the original sort of Star Wars feel, and they hit it. So, so I, I can uh, I'll, I'll tell I'll say this: even don't don't let my my hesitation keep going. You know, it's sort of the cultural event of 2015, and uh, and you should go, and you will probably enjoy yourself 
um, for reasons that, uh, you know, uh, uh, don't apply to the Star Wars, like, you know, uh, 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 Uber fan that I proclaim to be from time to time. So, all right, so let's get on to the spoilers. Spoiler stuff. I saw that coming. I call, I was like, he's going to kill him. He's going to, he's going to kill him. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I mean, I, it was, I thought it was a good death. I, I was so heartbroken and, and that's part of the reason. Um, so, so like one listener will understand what I'm talking about. So in the, the Star Wars books, the extended universe, there's a lot of these other books that were written like in the, in the nineties and two thousands. And it's like, what happened after return of the Jedi? So, so we've been, Star Wars fans have been talking about like this era of that universe for some time. And there's one series of books. Um, it's called the young Jedi order or the new Jedi order. And it, it chronicles the invasion of like the Star Wars universe by these like super religious warrior zealot, like species and they come in and they don't aren't affected by the force. They're called the Yuzum Vong. And in the first book of that series, um, they kill off Chewbacca. Okay. So in, and when I read that book, I said, forget it. Like I'm not reading anymore. Like I shut it down. I'm like, Nope, you don't mess with these guys. You don't mess with, uh, Han and, and Leia and, and Chewie and, 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 and anybody that you love from the original trilogy, you just don't mess with them. And so of course, what happens? You go in and, and Han, Han is dead. And I am, I am, I'm still in mourning and in shock. Like I'm in my Kubler Ross five stages of grief. Uh, maybe that's affecting my review right now. <laughs> Where are you at now? Are you in anger? You know? Oh yeah. And, and, and that's the thing about Kubler Ross, right? You know, like you can ping pong between them. You don't have to, you don't have to pick a, a certain stage. So I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, uh, denial, right? Because I'm like, maybe they'll bring him back. <laughs> maybe please. And then I'm in, in anger and, and, uh, you know, but, but part of it is, you know, I, I talked with about it with some friends and there were some good points made and it's points like, like Harrison Ford has never been comfortable as the star Wars hero. Like, yeah, it's he just wanted to kill off an empire strikes back. Yeah. They wanted, he wanted to kill off this character two star Wars ago. Yeah. And I imagine that a precondition of him, like doing this last Star Wars and probably a motivation for his excellent acting. I just was like, he's back. The man is back. Like Harrison Ford is smiling. I haven't seen him smile in uh, like a decade. And uh, I thought that, um, uh, uh, Harrison Ford was marvelous, but it was probably motivated by the fact he's like, I just have to do this one more time and I am done. <laughs> you know? And so I'm like, Oh, Harrison Ford, you're, you're ruining the magic. And then, Chewie goes on. We have Chewie going on. Chewie goes on. Everybody else makes it. You know, we, we finally find Luke Skywalker. That's one of the things I did like was the very first line of like the, the rolling introductory credits was Luke Skywalker has vanished. Yeah. I thought, all right, good. Like, like that's, that explains why he's not on the poster. That explains this other stuff. And the last uh, he scene with his hand with no flesh. Yeah, oh, exactly. That was great. Um, and, uh, and I thought, um, the other thing too is I think someone else pointed out that they're right, that if you're going to reboot star Wars and you're going to have Harrison Ford in it, he's just so good as Han Solo that he's going to steal the show. And if you're going to pass on the franchise to like the next generation, like you can't have Han Harrison Ford steal in that show. Yeah. And so they, 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 like, I, I get it. Like I know why, but I, I still don't, don't like it. If that makes sense. Yeah, I thought uh, I also thought that one of the things I really liked about the film was it's a vocation film. 
like forever. I mean, so many great films are vocation films. Like Rocky is mm-hmm. vocation film. And I mean, in right. the true sense, not. I think sometimes in our culture we reduce vocation to occupation, like like ha- how we make our money. Which is, I mean, I think really vocation. It's like three spheres, like a Venn diagram, right? Part of it's like relational, who I am, father, friend, brother, neighbor, lover. Another part is occupational, right? Like it's how, yeah. how I make my work in the world and, and contribute to it. And, and then the other part I think is, is something like ecclesial, like who I, who I am in the context of a spiritual community, uh, you know, and, and people that are. So I think that like it, on some sense, all of the interesting, all the emerging young characters are people that are finding their way in the world, figuring out who they're called to be and making big decisions about that. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I thought that was great too. You know, uh, a storm like I think one of my favorite. I, I did like, for example, that Finn is an ex stormtrooper, and I thought that's a really creative way to go in the Star Wars universe, like of, of having not just you know good guys being bad, like a Lando from you know Empire Strikes Back, but also bad guys with like a sense of conscience. Like I, I thought that was really great. Um, I, I liked Poe Dameron. I liked. Uh, um, uh, uh, Ray, I thought, I thought the new cast, like, I really liked them. So they did a good job of casting them in that. And you're right. That struggle to figure out like who you are in the universe. Am I a stormtrooper? Am I with resistance? Um, you know, am I just a scavenger with no family or do I need to, you know, go search for them? Uh, those are all really, I think, important questions, uh, that, that this really deals with. Um, you know, I think the, the thing that keeps me interested in not just sort of giving up the ghost on Star Wars, because, and I'll, I'll tell more about why I don't like it if anybody's curious. It's not just that Han Solo is no more. Uh, I, I do have some other beef with it. But it really could become, I think, this this next arc, this next three movies, um, you know, they've set up a really beautiful prodigal son story with oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Han, Han and Leia's son as, you know, Kylo. Ren. So surprise, like we have a, a Star Wars trope has returned. The bad guy is the family of the good guy and the good guy and the bad guy. They're all family. And so how do you how do you navigate that? And not just that, but that Kylo Ren is a um, disgraced um, uh, apprentice of Luke. And Luke is really licking his wounds because he couldn't, uh, you know, his name, Kylo Ren, his real name is right. Ben Solo, named after Obi-Wan Kenobi. Very cool. Right. And um and so I, I think there's a real great setup here for what could be a prodigal son arc. If if uh, if the original three were sort of a prodigal father arc, you know, how do you redeem Darth Vader? Um, then then here do we come? You know, how do you redeem uh, Luke Skywalker's nephew um, in um, in this next three movies? So uh, family plays a big part of this, and and I think you know if 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 Han Solo's sacrifice. Uh, leads to the um, you know redemption of his son, then I think you know there's there's some there's a mockingbird post that I will probably write about that <laughs> in the next couple of years. You know, you know the other thing is too like I that I think about that I liked about the journeys of the main characters like Stanley Harrowas I think said that you don't choose a, a, a tradition a spiritual tradition it chooses you. Like yeah. people have that sense that grace kind of comes and, and heals the will. And so like you, mm-hmm. none of the, the, the characters all f- are sliding in these places, but they're, it's almost like they're chosen by their roles. Not, they don't choose their roles. They're chosen by them. And they're kind of yeah. nerd, like pushed along in directions 
to, in finding themselves, you know. So I think that is very compelling because I think the best spiritual pilgrimages and grace journeys have that kind of characteristic. Yeah, um, and, and you, you must find uh, sort of how um, Luke is this, you know, Jedi of destiny from the original trilogy. It seems as if they're setting up that for um, for for um, uh, 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 gosh, I can't remember her name. Uh, Ray. For Ray was called a Ren. Ah, um, for Ray as well. You know, um, she's you know able to control the Force in a way that we haven't actually seen in any of the other Star Wars movies. She just comes to it more intuitively and 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 you know beats a trained Sith fighter in a, in a lightsaber fight. And you're thinking, well, you know that that's I guess just how the Force works. Sometimes that wasn't my favorite from a plot standpoint, but we'll see how that pans out later on. But yeah, they they get chose. There's this element of being chosen. Um, for, for these things that I think is really, you know, there's an inescapableness to it, uh, in Star Wars, which I really appreciate that once, once the, the light side has tapped you, um, you like, it's no use trying to fight it. Like, you know, it's irresistible light side, I guess, (laughs) if you want to call it that, as opposed to irresistible grace for the, for the Calvinists out there in our listening audience. I love it. And you know, I, no lines for Mark Hamill. And I was waiting for, you know, Mark Yeah. I feel like he always degenerates in the first three films to some version of like whiny Marty McFly. Like, come on, man. Like, man, we can't do it. go to Tashi Station and pick up some power converters. Yes. So, like, maybe he'll. I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe a more foreboding uh, uh, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker portrayal in the future. Yeah, and uh, I loved his hair, by the way. I just thought that was great. I was like, where, where did Mark Hamill go? It's Jeff Bridges right now from The Big Lebowski. Um, <laughs> but, uh, What's he doing with his time? He's, he's got a lightsaber. He's on the island. I'm just, just mm-hmm. meditation. Like, I, I hope he's, I hope he's got like good reading material. Like, so my my one, I'll, I'll say this. My one disappointment was I thought that the story it was there were just so many callbacks, and I really wanted them to explore new territory. So it was like. A new Death Star, a new trench run, a new, um, uh, a new, uh, 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 um, you know, female lead who's trapped on the Death Star and they have to go in and rescue and, you know, trash compactors are back and desert planets are back and but no cantinas with bands are back. Nobody switched off their targeting computer. Yeah, that's true. The, 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 this pilot was good enough. He didn't need to use the full Dameron, right? But, uh, yeah. but uh, you know, I, I thought that was disappointing. Like, they could have done so much in this new universe. And I think it it goes back to the marketing we were talking about. I feel like it was so safe. They played it so safe with the story um, that it was, it was predictable and it was somewhat disappointing. Um, but, you know... Uh, a, a predictable story sells, you know, um, uh, Star Wars coffee mate, you know? So, uh, that, that was my great disappointment was just, it was so many callbacks and it's such an expansive universe. They could have done so much with it and they didn't. So. And maybe the best is anyway. yet to come. Empire Strikes Back, I think was the best of the original three. So maybe right. the best is yet to come. Sure. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll, you know, freeze Finn in, in carbonite again or something like that. I don't know. I'm just being silly now, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. Expected sequel. I'm like I'm like the one person who's grouchy about the Star Wars thing. I think um, I'm I'm really happy. Like the the rest of the the greater community seems to love it, and I'm happy. You know, I, like it, we get we get our our characters back, even if it is one last time with Han Solo. 
Um, it, it was good to see him back up and running, but he's dead. So like we, you know, that part of our childhood and that, that sort of hope, you know, uh, as, um, as, as Kylo Ren says, you know, Han Solo cannot, isn't here to save you now. It's just us. And, and this is meta moment of like, you know, the, that our, our favorite characters will die one day and, um, we need to pass on the baton and they're just gonna have to, you know, pry that baton from my cold dead hands as a Star Wars fan. So. Anyway, thanks a bunch for, for having me on and letting me vent. And uh, I, I really hope uh, the, the listening audience enjoys it. And, um, you know, if anybody else has any thoughts, you can comment on my post. Or as the social media guy, you can just hit us up at, uh, at MockingbirdNYC on Twitter or uh, Facebook.com slash MockingbirdMen. Uh, you can find us in both places. We're on Instagram as well. Uh, you can find us there at uh, MockingbirdMen, I believe. And, um, uh, you know, as always, you can find us on inbird.com and you can find this wonderful podcast that, uh, our man Scott runs. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, we love it. Like I'm a huge fan of the podcast and I'm, I'm Ian honored on. Thanks Brian. And may the force be with you. And may the force be with you as well. Talk to you later.